Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace that you have given to us, Father, in, in calling us together as a body, giving us leadership, drawing a people uh, to your word, to hear your word, to be changed by it. Uh, Father, we recognize that we are not deserving of this. We're not deserving of your mercy and your grace, your compassion to us. That we, are not, um, we know that we're not able to come to you. We know that we're not able to find you on our own. We're not able to earn a place at your table. We know that we're not able to earn an adoption and to be called and loved as sons. And Father, we want to be overwhelmed in the reality that you have shown your light of the knowledge of your glory to us in the face of Christ, that you've awoken our darkened hearts and you have revealed yourself to us in, in, in ways that we could never create for ourselves. And so, Father, we want to be a people that stand in awe, a people that are overwhelmed with you, that just wonder over the marvelous mercy that you have given to us. Lord, we want to be servants. We want to be sons and daughters. We want to be ambassadors. We want to be a people who live in light of such profound grace. We want to be a people that are, that are not burdened to declare your glory, but that our chests are burning with fire over all that you are and all that you've done. So, Father, we would ask you to continue your sanctifying grace in our lives, that those here who know you uh, would find the heat turned up, that their love for you, their pleasure in you, their, their being overwhelmed by your mercy would, would move them to want to live in light of such great grace. And Father, for those that, that don't really know you and that have not had their eyes opened, Father, I pray that you would grant them grace as you've granted to us, that you would display that mercy and declare your goodness to them in the face of Christ, that their eyes might be open and to see what they've seen, but to see it differently and to see it more profoundly. We know that uh, spiritual things cannot be discerned except by those who have the Spirit. And Father, I believe in the power of the Spirit to move through your word among your people for your glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to take just two weeks and look at um, really the nature of, of being a church that is more missional-minded. Now, the word missional is a word that if you've read much in, in theological circles, it's kind of been hijacked in about half a dozen ways in terms of what it means. What I mean by missional is very simple, and that is that we're just a people that are overwhelmed with what God has done for us. And, and because of being kind of overwhelmed by God's grace, that we're you know, kind of uh, impelled, if you will, out of that love uh, to live for the sake of others that they might love the same God we love. It's really nothing more than that, 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 that we would be overwhelmed by God, and, and therefore we would just want to naturally live for the sake of others, that, that the self-centeredness that many of us struggle with would be just broken or at least weakened in our lives, that we might live for others with the intent that they would enjoy the same God that we enjoy. I'm convinced a lot of evangelism never happens because we're not that excited about God, so why should we get anybody else to be interested in something we're not even interested in? 
And so missional living is that idea of living for the sake of others. Now, the passage I, I chose is Second uh, Corinthians 4. It's really, a, an, um, it's really Paul writing about himself, frankly. And he's going to talk about the power of this grace of God or the gospel, or the operative word will be treasure. Treasure is the word. That, that, that You've got to know what this treasure is that we have. And, and then the rest of the passage speaks about how we ought to live in light if we really understand the nature of the treasure then this is what's going to come out of our lives. This is the life we're going to live. So it's really two simple points to a sermon, the nature of the treasure and then how we live in light of that. So uh, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and, uh, and I'm going to read the 15 verses. I'm not going to go all the way to 18 just yet, but I'll read the first 15. And uh, starting in verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give, the, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also, with Jesus, excuse me, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Okay, so there's the treasure that we see here in the first six verses. The first six verses tell us about an immense treasure that we are called to value rightly, and then the balance of the passage is really speaking about living in light of that treasure. Okay, so, so let me just speak about the treasure for a minute. You need to know the power of the gospel. You need to know the treasure if you're ever going to live in light of it. That makes sense. It's very, very simple to follow. So, so here's what Paul's doing. If you look in the first verse, he says, we have this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. So Paul's being challenged in ministry, and uh, he is speaking and reminding the Corinthians that he knows his ministry of preaching the gospel has not been given to him because of some merit or some, something he deserved in response to some work he did. It's all by the mercy of God. 
He knows that this ministry of reconciliation, the reconciling of people, it's all of God. God has to do it. It's all contingent upon God. That's why you notice in verse 2, he says, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We don't practice cunning or tamper with God's word. To tamper, the idea is if you want to extend wine, you can pour water, you can dilute the wine to make it more palatable and make it go longer. And he's saying, we don't do that. We're not changing the gospel. We're not adapting it. We're not adjusting it. He says simply this, but by open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. They just preach the gospel as the gospel. Now, you've got to remember the context. In 2 Corinthians, it's kind of a defensive letter. Paul had planted this church, had seen it grow, and these false apostles are in chapter 11. They're called super apostles. They came in and they started saying, Paul's really not the man that we want to follow. His teaching is kind of weakened. We're bringing in a greater teaching. They say, you can't really follow Paul. He's not much of a preacher, number one. Number two, he doesn't have a lot of followers behind him. His charisma is not great. And look at his life. It's filled with suffering and persecution. I mean, if that's Paul, and if that's the message he's declaring, not sure about the quality of the message. We definitely are questioning the quality of the messenger. And so that's what he's up against. And so Paul is now trying to say this. He's saying, listen, he says, don't, I may be lacking of charisma. I may be a lousy preacher. I'm definitely suffering. But don't look at the gospel as the result or the reason for that. In fact, look with me in verse 3. He says, even if our gospel's veiled, he's kind of taking their argument. And, and, and they're saying, yeah, Paul preaches a gospel. Look at how it's veiled. It's not affecting. We don't see a lot of results in your ministry, Paul. We don't see 100 baptisms a year. So he says, even if our gospel's veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So Paul's saying that their unbelief has them in darkness. And Satan is blinding them from seeing the glory of Christ in the gospel. So the gospel itself is not to be invalidated. The gospel is plenty powerful. Their unbelief and the darkness surrounding them and the influence of Satan is what is keeping them from responding. John Calvin said it this way, the blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clearness of the gospel, for the sun is no less resplendent because the blind do not perceive its light. So Paul's saying to the church, when people don't come, they're perishing. Three times he says that in these letters. They're perishing. It's interesting to find people, the way Paul views humanity, is some are being saved, some are perishing. I mean, they're on this track. There's no neutral ground. There's no way station. There's no train station. People are moving in one direction or another. You, actually, are moving in one direction or another. You're either moving to being saved or or you're moving to greater perishing. Now, thankfully, we don't stop there. Look at what Paul says in verse 5. He says, but what we proclaim is not ourselves. That's what these esoteric preachers were doing. These preachers were preaching about themselves and their wisdom and their ideas. He says, we don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants. He says, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts, 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He stacks a lot of prepositions upon themselves. So let's go through this very simply. Notice what Paul's doing. He turns to God. God is the only one that can enlighten the darkened mind. My wisdom, my persuasion, any skills of eloquence I have are absolutely, without a doubt, inadequate to ever wake up a person. And that's what Paul's saying. God, and he's telling the Corinthians, this is what happened to you. You want to follow those false teachers? Well, let me tell you what happened to you that you even know about the gospel. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now, I do want you to know that that comes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Interestingly, it goes all the way back to Genesis. So in Genesis, God has, there's nothing, there's darkness, and out of darkness with a command, God speaks, and boom, light comes out of it. I mean, it's just a display of the incredible power of God that he can speak things into existence, and light comes forth. And so Paul's using that as an analogy and saying, as God created life with his word, so now God has to shine light into our hearts. And look at what happens. God has to shine into our hearts to give the light or the understanding of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You and I cannot know of God's glory you can see it in creation, but only in, a, only in a sense that leads to judgment. But the knowledge of God's glory is found in the face of Christ. And it's God shining that light into your soul, waking you up and saying, I understand. It, it, it's the face of Christ is kind of a, it's called a metony. It's, it's a a comprehensive way of looking at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's the gospel. And looking at the gospel, God's reconciling work of the world through Christ, it's all in his face. Think about Paul. Paul's traveling to Damascus. He's angry. He's bitter. He's seeking to destroy a church, the church. And what happens? He's struck down, right? Light. The light blasts in. And in in, uh, Galatians... Galatians or Acts, it says that he sees the face of Christ, the light, the face of Christ, and he's transformed, he's changed, he's converted. And that's what he's speaking about here. He's speaking to his own testimony, but the testimony of all believers, that it has to be God to shine light. It isn't about how well we verse things. It's about the power of God. That's the first thing you have to know. If you're a Christian, It is God that has given you mercy to shine that light into your heart. I remember when when I was converted, uh, Carol, some of you know, I've always given kind of my testimony in bits and drabs, but but the short of it is I was just invited to go to a Bible study. And um, at this Bible study, they just read the scriptures. I don't even remember really what the scriptures were speaking about. I just remember being introduced to the gospel. It wasn't introduced in a great way. The two people leading it weren't trained. They were just ordinary guys. They just had a Bible study. We read, just read the scriptures. And then after the Bible study, I'm sitting in the car, and I'm just flatlined, overwhelmed with the reality of God's power and holiness and my unholiness and my need for a Savior. I mean, it, it, just, it, it doesn't always have to happen that way. I don't want my testimony to become the standard. That, that was how God moved in me. It may be different for you. But the point of it is that God has to move. And that's the power of the gospel. And that's what Paul's saying. God has to move. So the Christian, for the Christian here, 
We don't need, the gospel doesn't need our help, I guess is what I'm saying. That the gospel, it doesn't, we don't need to peddle it or to tamper with it or to adjust it. There's always the temptation uh, among men that we want to soft pedal things. We want to make it a little more palatable. That we don't want to just come out with this uniqueness of Christ. We don't want to come out with this idea that, that this is, it's Jesus or, or you're in trouble. And really, by the way, folks, this is really the origin of theological liberalism. You know, you look at some church, churches, they don't really believe in Jesus as the only way. They don't believe in the doctrine of hell. They don't believe in predestination. They don't believe in these things. Well, liberalism was started by, by scholars who actually, they were trying to help the church. See, they were, they were saying, hey, you come across these doctrines like Revelation 19, when God is bringing judgment upon the sinner and the saints shout hallelujah, oh, that sounds so bad. I mean, it sounds like, mm. or, or the doctrine of judgment or the doctrine of predestination or the uniqueness of Christ. I mean, you hear those things, and to the natural mind, they are really, un, they're just dissonant. They're uncomfortable. Well, it shouldn't be that way. We, we take our democratic model of life and we put it to God and God should be a Democrat in the sense of democratic. And, and when he doesn't act that way, it seems off-putting to us. I don't want to serve that God. Okay, well, maybe I'm not explaining it right. You know, and then we kind of soft pedal it. The gospel doesn't need that. It's the power of God that saves. It's meant to be that way. It's meant to be this stark. And, and here's why. God will be great. And God will be great in you. And the only way God can be great in the sense of he has to wake you up. If you're bringing your wares to the table, he's bringing his wares to the table, and it's a collective effort, God is not great. God's helpful, but he's not great. Jonathan Edwards, the first paper that he published, that he sent to Boston, that really began some of the trouble that I was speaking about last week, the title of this paper was, God is most glorified when man is most dependent. In other words, when you come to understand your radical, radical dependence upon him for mercy to save you, now you're beginning to get it. You're beginning to understand who you are in this plan of God. So that's the first thing. We don't want to, that's why Charles Wesley uh, wrote this hymn. Uh, many of, it's, and can it be? It's one of my favorites. And he speaks to it in the same way, using this idea of darkness and light and that sort of thing. Here's the, I think it's the third stanza. He says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night or darkness. Where are we? Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So for you to know the power of the gospel, you have to know it resides in God. It's all of God. God in his mercy has chosen you before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless. That is power. It's God's power. But secondly, the issue with the Christian looking at these first six verses is that the gospel is centered on Christ. I mean, we want to be involved in social action. We want to be involved in engaging the culture. We want to um, encourage love of the brethren and all those things. They're not the gospel. They flow naturally out of the gospel, but they're not the gospel. The gospel itself is Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says we preach Christ. 
We're not standing up here. Any man that fills the pulpit is never going to be telling you simply about himself or his ideas or his wisdom, but it's about Christ and what he has done. And when I speak about preaching the gospel, and uh, I probably belabor this point, but I, I feel like I need to given the direction of our culture. When I speak about the gospel, I'm not talking about a couple things you need to know to get by that final day. I'm not talking about, well, these are, if you know these things, then you'll be forgiven and you'll be, you'll be in good shape. I, when I talk about the gospel, I'm, I'm starting where, where Paul starts, back in Genesis. You know, God creating all things. That's the beginning of the gospel. In the beginning, God created the world, the heavens and the earth. And then we have the fall, that is the sin. And then we have the redemption that was promised and the redemption that was accomplished and the redemption that's going to be consummated when we see Christ. When I speak about the gospel, I'm talking about God's massive reconciling work that he has done in Christ. That Christ is the focal point, the center point. He is the main beam of all things that God does with us. And that's why it's in the face of Christ that we see the glory of God. So, so for that, uh, just as the Christian, we're thinking that the gospel needs no help and that the gospel is centered on Christ. So now that's what he's saying in the first six verses. Okay, so when we move to verse 7, he's now going to move us forward and he's going to say, well, here's how you live in light of the gospel. If we want to be a church that is missional, then we have to understand, I cannot believe how radically saved I've been. And by the way, for the, for the person here who isn't sure that you have had the knowledge of the glory of God through the face of Christ. You've just met four elders. Come speak to them about that. You know, we don't always have altar calls, uh, but I am calling for faith. Well, I'm calling for faith among you believers that you grow in your understanding of this, that it will sanctify you. But I'm also calling to the unbeliever. If you question this, if you wonder, well, it seems patently unfair that it all has to be God. It has to be our decision too, Tom. And while the scriptures do call for a decision, as Charles Wesley gave word to, your decision follows his opening your eyes. But, but if you have issues with that, please come forward. We'd love to speak with you about this further. Okay, so, so that's, the, that's the glory of, that's the treasure that we have. Folks, I hope you value it. I hope you think upon it. I, I, hope, you, I hope you find it to be worthy of your meditation. I, I hope you you find that as your years progress, there is a greater and greater value that you have on God's mercy to you. I hope that when you begin to pray, you would begin to pray with words like, God, why are you so kind to me? Or, or God, I know I'm not deserving of this, but your mercy is greater, greater to me than I deserve. And this is what flows out of a deepened understanding of what it means when God wakes up a soul that, that, that you're humble. I, I hope it flows out. This is a humility. And never an arrogance among the faith. The faithful are never arrogant. Why? Because we're so desperate. We're so dependent upon God. So that's, that's the power of the gospel. That's the treasure. That's what God has done for us. And he's only done it, folks, not because he relented, not because he decided one day, you know what, I've had them under, the, I've had them under my thumb long enough, I'm going to give them a breather. That isn't it. He did it all because of Christ. See, in Christ, God was able to be merciful because Jesus Christ paid for our sins. And so God's justice was maintained. The sins of the saint have been punished legitimately and thoroughly. 
But mercy has been extended because Jesus has been our substitute. He is the one who came in place, bore our sin, so that we might bear his righteousness. So that's why he did it. God just didn't say, you know what, it's been a couple thousand, a couple million years, whatever. I'm going to give him a break. No, it's in the face of Christ we see all this. Okay, so what do we do? Well, we, I think we ought to live in light of it. I, I mean, we want to live in light of this. This, for me, is a defining kind of impetus for me to live. And, and look what he says in verse 7, because there's a transition. He says, but we have this treasure. That's what I've been speaking about. If you're saved, you have been treasured. You have this treasure in jars of clay to show this surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, there's a clear contrast here. We have treasure in jars of clay. If any of you know about a jar of clay, they're worthless. When I went to Israel, there were pieces of pottery all over Caesarea by the sea. We went to see this. And, and some of them are supposed to be very ancient, but they're absolutely worthless. They're common. They're expendable. They're easily broken. Really, it's just dirt and water. I mean, a clay pot has no value other than that which is in the clay pot. That's all it is. And that's the contrast. That God, for his own purposes, has taken this treasure that I've just shared with you, and he's given it to us. And it's incredible. He has put this treasure, I mean, you wouldn't treat diamonds or gold that way, but he put it in this earthen vessel. Why? Well, he tells us, so that the surpassing power would belong to God and not to us. There'd be no confusion. So when we go forth in missional living, and we declare the gospel, and God does a unique work, nobody's going to say, wow, man, the way he presented that, that was unbelievable. I'm just an earthen vessel. You're earthen vessels. That's all we are. And it's so that we will make much of God. In fact, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So, so what he's saying here, uh, really, if, if you want to look at four kind of facets of how we live in light of this treasure, first is, is simply this, that um, we minister out of our weakness. We minister out of our earthenness, if you will. Uh, this is pretty remarkable if you think about it, because I think, Usually we think, well, if he's educated and sophisticated and eloquent, we're in great shape. But the Christian is not to think that way. No, the Christian is to think, no, 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 no. We are all weakened, right? I mean, we are weakened. Some of us have our weaknesses are more psychological. They may be more physical. They may be more relational in the sense that we may struggle with melancholy or depression. Maybe our minds are not able to grasp stronger truths. But according to this text, that doesn't matter. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's out of clay pots. It's out of, you know, the weaker the vessel is, when things happen, who becomes more glorious? Well, God does. And that's the whole point. I mean, this is what Paul's driving at in chapter 12 of this letter when he says this. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Paul is understanding his suffering to be a weakening influence of God, so that when when God does a work through him, God gets all the credit. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says, where do you find the most precious pearls? Those precious, valuable pearls are in the ugly shell of an oyster. You know, what, what do you do with oyster shells? 
Maybe you make a driveway out of them if you live on the coast. That's all you do. You throw them away. They're ugly. They're gnarly things. You hate to ever step on them in the water. But out of that comes a pearl. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said this in his sermon. He said, if angels had been commissioned to preach the gospel, we might have attributed some of its power to their superior intelligence. And if only those who had been called to preach the gospel who are men of great intellect and profound learning, we might have considered that the talent of the man was the essential qualification for a good preacher. But when God selects, as he often does, nay, as he always does, earthen vessels, and some that seem more manifestly earthen than others, then the excellency of the power is unquestionably seen to be of God and not to us. So living a missional life is going to be through your weakness, not your strength. But not just through your weakness, not just human weakness is no preventer of God's power, but also human ordinariness. We do have to realize we live in a very Hollywood age where I think we make much of the extraordinary. In, even in the church, as we've discussed before, we have rock stars. We have people that we follow. They have big followings, and we follow them, and we talk about them, and, and even in our contemporaries. And uh, we make much of them, and the ordinary kind of gets a lower shelf. Well, I'm just, I'm just a normal guy. And, and by, by that, you mean that you can't be really used of God. And, and I would say this to you, that I think the sophistication, the eloquence, the humor, that sort of thing, I think it can be a hindrance to the gospel. Actually, I don't think it's an aid. I think it can be a hindrance. Like James Denny, this is a quote that a few of us love. He says, no man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. You're going to go with one or the other. Charles Simeon, another, another dead man that is a great man in the sense that he's left a mark. God's spirit worked through him mightily. He wrote this. He said, as for the particular talents of the preacher or the peculiarities which attend his ministrations, you should, as far as possible, overlook them and fix your attention only on the treasure which he unfolds to your view and presents for your acceptance you would act thus in reference to a casket of jewels which was set before you. You would not despise them because the casket was plain, nor regard them because it was eloquent, elegant. The enjoying of the possession is that which would be uppermost in your mind. And so it should be when the treasures of the gospel are tendered to you. You should not consider the vessel in which they're bought, brought, If it be of gold, your regards would not be fixed on that, nor if it be of earthen should you undervalue the treasure it contains. So it's just whether you are weakened or whether you're ordinary, God can use you mightily. And that's the point. God has chosen the foolish and the things that are not to shame the wise. So folks, In terms of you living light of the gospel, if you say, well, I can only bring weakness and ordinariness, great. You're the ones that God would use to advance his purposes in this world. And I want you to be encouraged by that because I think a lot of us still play to the performance. And if he's trained, if he's eloquent, uh, then then we're going to stand behind him. He uses the ordinary and the weak things. I can't you know, let me give you one more quote from Spurgeon, just because it's one of my favorites. But he, may, he said this one day, he may preach the gospel better than I do, but he can't preach a better gospel. And that's what you have. You can, nobody can preach a better gospel than the one we have. 
Okay, okay, so in your, in your weakness, God's going to minister. Secondly, ministry from this treasure is going to be in your sufferings. Now, I want you to embrace this. I want to try to reorient your view in sufferings here. Look with me in verses 8 through 10. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, <clears throat> persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in your bodies. For we who, are, who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So what is he saying here? Uh, Paul is speaking to, of course, he's just saying, we have suffered. But suffering is part of the gospel. In other words, he speaks to the persecution and the perplexing and the being struck down, and he speaks to all of it. In fact, in verse 10, he kind of summarizes it when he says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. See, Paul's trying to make sense of his suffering here. And he's saying the purpose of my suffering is to display Christ to the nations, to display Christ to you. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. That, that when you look at uh, verses 8, notice that there's four couplets here. We're afflicted, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, that's true, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. He's kind of showing this picture of, of the cross and the resurrection. He's showing Jesus Christ to us. That yes, I'm suffering, but I'm persevering. Yes, I am, I am dying, but I'm actually living and displaying his life in me. In other words, the suffering that the saint goes through in advancing the gospel and living before people for the sake of the gospel is going to suffer, but God will not abandon you. And, and by your suffering, by your endurance in the midst of suffering, you're going to display Christ. Now, you don't save anybody by this. You are not Christ, you know, in terms of propitiation. You're not taking their sins upon yourself, but you are propagating Christ to a modern audience. You're revealing this is what Christ did for us. You're giving people a picture of he suffered, but he loves me. He suffered, but he comes back to serve me. He was persecuted, but he's still advancing the name of Jesus. You're displaying Christ to one another. That God has so determined that the saint is through suffering he will display a picture of Christ. So, Christian, knowing the power of the treasure, it's going to involve you suffering. And, and I want to reorient your mind, because when we suffer, we tend to deny it, or we slip into despair over it, or we tend to blame Satan for it. You don't see Paul blaming Satan. You don't see him casting Satan out of anything. You see him understanding his experience in the way that, okay, this is the way I'm going to model Christ for people. I'm going to suffer. And, and doesn't it make sense? I mean, as Christians who want to follow Christ, ought you to think that life will never involve that? I mean, if Jesus said they did this to me, they're going to do this to you, are we somehow exempt because we're in America? Or part of Western culture? I mean, don't you find that when you, when you select a person in your life who has suffered well, and they have endured faithfully through trial. Aren't you impressed by that? Don't you see the grace of God in their lives? I'll tell you one thing. We've prayed for miracles, and God has given them. They never last as long, in my mind, nor do they display the power of God as a saint who is being crushed but not forsaken, who is being persecuted but they're not struck down. 
and they continue to maintain a strong faith and love and joy in God in the midst of it. That, to me, is a picture of Christ. Your sufferings will never be Paul's. I don't want you fearing, well, what would I do if I went through something like that? Well, if it did, God will give you the grace for it. But we're never to compare our sufferings with others. I would even step back from that and just say, if we're going to live missional lives, we have to live them out of our weaknesses, but we also have to be willing to suffer in terms of conveniences and comforts and entertainments. It may be time with family. It may be some ridicule. You present the gospel to somebody and they say, okay, that's, that's the, okay he's one of those Jesus guys, great. You know, there may be some ridicule, there may be some rejection, some marginalization. Yeah, that's probably going to happen. But is he not worth it? Again, go back to the power, go back to the treasure. Is it not worth it? I think you'll find it is. So, so I'm calling you as a church to begin to be willing to embrace the suffering that may come with walking in the manner that Christ walked. You know, I, I, as Carol is an example, I know she wouldn't want me to share it, but, but I'm going to anyways. We have the neighbor, well, I'll, and you'll see why. Because I'm very, it, was a, it was an instruction to me, frankly. And uh, so we have a neighbor that's been dying and, and really has been dying and comes back and, and, and draws near to death and comes back. And, and this time he really drew right to the edge and ICU, family was preparing themselves. Kids can't watch the kids, the whole thing. And, uh, and, and what, what impressed Carol was praying, we're praying for him because we, we want it one more time to share the gospel with him. We have a number of times and uh, <laughs> opposed to it. And, um, and, and then he, he made a recovery a little bit. And so Carol's read of that was, God's mercy to him is mercy to me that I can share the gospel one more time with him. And so we're going to go down, and I, I couldn't go down that day. I was going down the next day. She says, no, i got to go. God just, i got to go. So she went down there, shared the gospel with the man, and uh, have no idea at this point how, what happened or what he understood. But, but just the response, that's a missional life. We have the power of the gospel. It doesn't matter how hard they are or how open you think they are. It's the power of God delivered through the saint, the weakness and the brokenness of a saint. It may interrupt your schedule. It may be inconvenient to you. Is the gospel not worth it? So we're to be a people of. And then thirdly, you'll notice that Paul's ministry was carried out in faith. Look in verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what's been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us. So Paul is saying, and don't be confused by verse 13. If you look in your reference, you see it say Psalm 116. Paul is looking back at David's experience. David was in trouble. He prayed to God. He still spoke in faith, encouraging people to believe, even though he was in trouble. Paul compares himself to that and say, even though I'm suffering, I'm still going to speak about the gospel, and I'm still going to call people to believe, even though I'm in the midst of the furnace. And so, and what Paul's believing is given to us in verse 14, he believed that Jesus was raised by God and will be raised. So I cannot go into this in great detail, but I would just remind you that Paul is focusing on the resurrection. He's focusing on life in this time and this age is temporal and it's short. It's going to be over, but there is another life and it's coming and it's going to be great and it's going to be glorious. You see it in 16 and 17 when he says that we don't lose heart even though our outer body is wasting away, our inward mind is being renewed day by day for these light momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. Folks, I'm not going to speak to you about that. I would just say this to you. We are in a fast-paced world. We don't have time for meditation. If you don't think upon the nature and the power of the resurrection, you're going to have trouble when trials come. You're going to back away. 
But when trials and sufferings come into your life, to press forward in faith, you need to have a handle on the resurrection. And to understand your resurrection needs you to think and dwell and meditate on it, and I'm asking you to do that. Like a, a tea bag in water. If you dip it in, pull it out, it's not going to have much effect on the water. Let the bag soak. Let it soak and soak and soak. You soak your mind on the nature of the resurrection that Paul says he will place us with the Corinthians in the presence of God. And if you don't soak on that and think about it, and if you don't, if we're not developing that eye to the next life where we see him face to face, sufferings will be very, very um, successful in derailing us from living a life for Christ that will involve suffering. And then last, in verse 15, uh, Paul is living now. He's ministering in weakness. He's ministering in suffering. He's ministering by faith. He's also ministering for the hope of men and women to find God glorious. Look with me in 15. He says, for it is all for your sake. So Paul is saying, you know what? My preaching, my teaching, my suffering, it's been for you, Corinthians. I have done it for you. But it doesn't stop there. He says, it's for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul's goal in missional living is for others to find God to be glorious, such that they would thank him for his beautiful glory. In other words, Paul's not simply seeking to save a people from being away from God. He wants the people that he is, but more. He wants them to be grateful to God. Not just, think about it this way. So you give a child a present at Christmas, and he opens the present. He may be thankful for the present, but the thankfulness over the present doesn't always extend to the giver. It it just is for the present. Yeah, it's a great present. I really like it. But it doesn't translate to I'm thankful to the giver. What Paul's saying is, I'm just not looking to see people be saved from hell. I'm looking for people to be saved that they would enjoy God fully. That more and more and more thanksgiving, as grace extends to more people, more thanksgiving would be to God. That's the picture we have in Revelation chapter 5, when every tribe, tongue, and nation is around the throne, and we're all shouting, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who is slain with this bloody purchased man for God to be a nation of, uh, a kingdom of priests to serve our God. That's what we're all doing. And so Paul's saying that our mission isn't just about helping people on a physical level. It's not just about even helping them understand these certain spiritual laws, but it's really understanding that God is so glorious that all your joy will be up in him. You know, many of us, when we want our kids to go on mission trips, we'll say, well, I think it's important for our children, for a child to have this mission trip to see how good he has it. Or we say uh, that we want to do some ministry because, you know, I feel so good. And it's true, we do feel good. But when you think about what Paul's saying, that that his ministry is so that people would grow to understand the glory of God and thank him for his glory, don't those reasons seem almost wicked? I mean, don't they sound so self-centered? I mean, those things may come out of it. The goal of missions as a church and as a people is that they would find God to be great. The gratitude wouldn't be for the salvation, but the giver of the salvation. It will naturally be for the salvation if it's in the giver. And so I would ask you, when you look at your life, do you understand the power of the gospel? Do you understand God shining light into your soul? And then when you understand that, can you not see how beautiful it would be for us to begin to minister out of weakness, to minister 
through and because of suffering, know that God's going to bring suffering into our life so as to display Christ in our bodies and that we would walk by faith in this ministry, trusting that even as trials come, we are going to be raised with him and that our work is for the end of people finding God to be glorious. That's the end goal. The end goal is that others would just be thankful over the greatness and glory of God. You all, God has planted you according to Acts 17. He's appointed the places and the times in which you live. You have families, you have communities, you have workplaces, you have friendships. This is to, you don't need to go overseas. We just need to start in homes, start in our communities, start. Start saying, okay, how am I going to begin? Even as the elder forum was speaking, how am I going to begin serving people? How am I going to begin to die to myself to encourage other people? And, uh, and then next week we'll follow this up. So let's take a minute now and uh, I'll start us praying. We only have a few minutes. Ray is going to close us in just a little bit. But respond to the word. I would ask you to respond uh, briefly but loudly so that we can engage with you before the Father on the prayer that you're making. And uh, let me start. Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. We are overwhelmed that you have shown the light of your glory in the face of Christ. Father, may it transform us to living lives uh, that would display and declare Christ.